0: So this morning, um, we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 20, Um, just to let you know for uh, next week, which is Palm Sunday, and it's also our scheduled observance of the Lord's Supper, which is perfect timing. I wish I could say I did it on purpose. Um, I did not. And then the following Sunday being Easter, we're going to go a little bit out of sequence next couple of weeks. So, don't read ahead because you don't know where we're going to be. No, you can read ahead. That's okay. Keep keep reading. That's fine. Um, This morning, uh, even though we've got 17 through 34, that's 17 verses uh, set up for this morning, I'm only going to read just the first part, uh, verses 17 through 19 this morning, because this really hits at the heart of... Uh, the entire message, so if you would stand with me for Matthew twenty verses seventeen through nineteen, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified." And he will be raised on the third day. Let's pray. Father, such a short passage that has such an important meaning for us. Let us not overlook the things that we find familiar. Uh, Father, most of us here have probably read these chapters and, and heard these chapters preached a number of times. But Father, I pray this morning that we would have our eyes open to see the importance of this message. We'd have our ears open to hear your word and to understand how it needs to change our lives today. So, Father, help us. Help us to be the people that you call us to be. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please have a seat. So, and I've, I've mentioned this before. If your Bible is one of those that has the headings in between the, the different sections, there's probably three headings in your Bible between verse uh, 16, uh, after verse 16, and before verse 34. Just a guess. You probably have one that has to do with Jesus foretelling his death, which I just read. You probably have one to do with the request of James and John's mother. And then you probably have one that has something to do with the two blind men alongside the road. We're going to look at all three of those sections today. The first being what I just read. This is the third time Jesus foretold his death. This is the third time Jesus told the disciples, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. Now, if you go to the first one, which is in chapter 16, verse 21, it says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And if you remember, that happens right after Jesus does the poll with the disciples, who do Ben say that I am? Some say you're the prophet, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes that great confession of faith. And then immediately after verse 21 in chapter 16, When Jesus starts showing them that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed and on the third day be raised, the same guy who made that great confession of faith says what? "Uh -uh." (laughs) Uh-uh. That'll never happen. We're not letting you go to Jerusalem to die, where Jesus then corrects him and lets him know that that is man's will. That is Satan's will. That is a lie. That is not God's plan. The second time was in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Short, sweet, and to the point. In chapter 17, nobody argues with Jesus. Or at least Matthew doesn't record it. Now that might be because of the way Jesus corrected Peter. The others caught on. Maybe Peter was a little sensitive. We don't know. But it's not recorded that anybody argued with him. In fact, in chapter 17, uh, if I remember correctly, not long thereafter, um, the disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. So they probably weren't paying very close attention in chapter 17. And here in chapter 20, he says, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. So he adds a little bit of detail here that he didn't give in the last two. Every commentary I took a look at emphasized the fact that he spoke about the Gentiles being the ones to mock him and to flog him and to crucify him. But, you know, as I look at those other two... the role of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes is kind of subdued in chapter 16. He must suffer many things. What does that mean? Harassment? He's been getting harassed by the scribes and the Pharisees since the day he showed up. So it would be very easy for the the idea about this to, to be that the emphasis is on the Gentiles being the ones to kill him. However, it was the religious leaders. It was the scribes. The scribes. Let's look at the scribes for just a minute. Their job was Xerox. They were the copiers. Their job was to to sit in a room with a person at the head of the room reading each letter Of the Old Testament scrolls to a room full of people to copy letter by letter. These are the men who knew God's Word. And when I say they knew it, I mean they knew it by the letter. The chief priests. What was the role of the chief priests? Who were they? They were supposedly the descendants of Aaron, right, of the tribe of Levi. Now, the the high priest had actually been appointed by the Romans. He was not of the right family line. However, his father-in-law, who had been chief priest or, or the high priest, was still fulfilling the role, right? So the high priests were the people, they were of the the family of Aaron. They were descendants of Aaron. If there's anybody who should know what God requires of his people, you would think that it would be the chief priests and the scribes. The priests were supposed to be man's representative before God. They were the ones who performed the sacrifice. They were the ones who performed the prayers. They were the ones, they did all of this. And Jesus said that they're going to be the ones who condemn him to death. It's not going to be the Gentiles who find Jesus to be guilty and then execute him. It's going to be the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, of the Jews, the religious people. And then because it was a Roman-ruled province, it would have been illegal for the Jews to carry out the execution. They couldn't. The only people who could execute a criminal were the Romans. So of course he would be turned over to the Gentiles to be put to death. And now Jesus says he will be killed by crucifixion. Deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Crucifixion is quite probably the most horrible of deaths. There is nothing merciful, there is nothing quick, there is nothing kind about this death. Typically, the person who is crucified would not be a Roman citizen, or if they were, they were guilty of treason against the empire, right? They would be stripped naked, flogged, which in case you're not aware of what a flogging is, take a multi-tailed whip, and along each strap of leather you would braid in bits of bone and bits of metal, and then they would be struck with that whip until they were on the cusp of death. And then, after the flogging, then they would be tied to a cross piece. Now, this could be as small as a a four-by-four but it was most likely probably a little bit bigger, probably close to the size of a railroad tie, right? They would have their arms tied to it, and they would be forced to parade, beaten, bloodied, and unclothed through the streets of Jerusalem. Not a straight path, but a circuitous one that would travel throughout the city so everybody could see this offender who has been stripped of all human dignity and strength and everything else, then they would take them outside the camp. They would nail the arms to the cross rather than tie them. They would raise them by a winch from that beam. They would pull them up that Cross, right? They would drop the end into a hole in the ground. Drop while you're hanging from a cross piece. Okay? And now here was the here was the here's the really bad part. Underneath the feet, which were also nailed <laughs> to the cross they would sometimes put a little wooden platform so that they could use their feet and straighten their knees, thereby lowering their arms. Because what that would permit is for the lungs to reinflate. Because if you stand long enough like this, your lungs quit working the way they're supposed to. They start to fill up with fluid. And it's agonizing. And so the person who is being crucified would would actually be like this. And they would be able to push against that nail driven through their feet and that little platform and raise themselves up so that they could breathe, which would just prolong the death. That's why when we read about Jesus' crucifixion, it says that the, the Romans, who were eager to get it over with before the Sabbath started, so this is Friday before sunset, they sent a soldier out With a hammer. Because if they were trying to make it merciful, I don't know how you can apply that word, they would take that mallet and shatter the lower leg bones so that the prisoner couldn't push themselves up. There was nothing to push with. And so they would suffocate faster. That's mighty kind of them, isn't it? If that wasn't bad enough, we've already stripped their dignity, we've already beaten them nearly to death, and now we have killed them the most painful way imaginable. The body would then be taken down off of the cross and taken to the valley of Hinnom. Translated for us as Gehenna. Which, by the way, in a lot of the translations, that word Gehenna is translated as hell. Okay, that's not to say that hell's not a real place. It is to say that the valley of Hinnom was hell on earth. It was a refuse heap that was set on fire that the trash and the food scraps and, and all, of the, all of the refuse from Jerusalem would be shipped to this burning landfill. So they would take the dead bodies off the cross and throw them on the trash heap, denying them a, a Jewish burial, denying them even the dignity of being put to rest with their families or their friends. The body would decay, it would rot, it would be consumed by the heat and the flames and then the, just the process of composting, the parasites, the, the carrion eaters, And yet Jesus, all three times that he announced his death was coming, he said, and on the third day be raised. And he will be raised on the third day. And he will be raised on the third day. It'd be a whole lot more likely that a person who was buried according to Jewish custom could be raised on the third day than a person who was disposed of in Gehenna. Of course, Jesus didn't say anything about his burial to the disciples. He just said he was going to be crucified. They've got this picture in their head. They understand what that means. We may have lost that here in, in 21st century America, and I know I'm being a little bit gruesome and, and and probably explaining a whole lot more detail than most of us are comfortable with as I'm watching everybody out here squirm when I talk about the pain of crucifixion, Right? But the fact of the matter is, we have accepted this idea when Jesus said you have to take up your cross and follow Him. We think that means we have to put up with unpleasantness. You know, my coworkers don't like it when I say Merry Christmas, but that's just my cross to bear. That's not a cross. Okay? That's the little tiny cross that you wear on your necklace. Yeah, that's the cross you have to bear. That's not what Jesus meant. <laughs> Jesus meant you have to be willing to put your life to death. That's what a cross means. So what does it mean that Jesus said three times that he was going to Jerusalem to be killed and then to be raised on the third day? How what's what's the what's the point of him repeating this? Is it just because the disciples are, after all, human beings and a little bit slow to learn? Maybe. Right? He does have Peter with him. I'm just saying. But I've mentioned this in the past. You need to pay close attention to things that are repeated in Scripture. Okay? I use this principle when I'm teaching on base. When I'm teaching somebody and I'm trying to impart something important, I'll I'll take from the lesson plan that I have, or from the, the PowerPoint presentation that I have, or whatever it is, and I will say whatever it is that I have to say but then I will say it a second time when I write it up on the board. And then I'll step out of the way so they can see the board and I'll read the board to them again. Okay, if I say it once, this is what I tell my students, if I say it once, it's not because I get paid to speak, it's because you need to learn it. Okay, if I say it and I write it down, it's not because they pay me extra for using dry erase markers, it's because you really need to know. But if I say it and then I write it and then I say it again, this is something that is absolutely positively critical to your function, what you need to know. When we see something that is repeated in Scripture, all right, number one, if it's in the Bible, it's probably important. Right? Would you all agree with that? If it's in the Bible, it's probably important. If it's repeated in the Bible, then you really need to pay attention. But if it's repeated three times in the Bible, that is like, that's bold, that's italic, that's underlined, that's flashing text, right? Every tool that God can use for his people to say, by the way, this is on the test, right? Podium kicking. This is of critical importance. Now, that's easy for us to understand because we're on this side of the resurrection. We're on this side of the New Testament. We are saved by God's grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, right? So we can say, yeah, of course that's, of course it is. Of course it is the essential of the gospel. That's easy. Ask you a question. When was the last time you told somebody about it? Cricket, 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 cricket. <laughs> you're not alone. Doesn't make you right, but you're not alone. Now, here's why this is so important. All right, it's not just because this is the, the core of the gospel. But if you look at the next part of the passage, verses 20 through 28, you might think, well, that's a little weird. How do these tie together? Why would Matthew put these two things next to each other? Because really, what happens in verse 20 doesn't really seem to make a lot of correlation with what happened in verses 17 through 19. Jesus is telling everybody he's got to go be crucified and then he'll be raised on the third day. And then we start in chapter uh, 20, verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with her sons and asked him for something. Well, I got to tell you, what she asked for was on one hand evidence that she understood who Jesus was, that the disciples were starting to get it. But on the other hand, it was an admission on the part of all of the disciples, that they didn't have a clue what Jesus was here for. Let's look at what, what happens here. Starting in verse twenty, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with him, uh, came up to him with her sons, kneeling before him. She asked him for something, and he said, "What do you want?" She said to him, "Say that these two sons of mine are to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom." Jesus answered, "You do not know what you are asking." Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. I'm going to stop there, because then we'll deal with what happens next in just a minute. So she asks if Jesus will say that James and John get to sit at his right and left hand. What's significant about that? Those are positions of preeminence. Those are positions of notoriety. Those are positions of authority. Now she probably, remember I said, this shows that she didn't have a clue what Jesus was there for. and where would she get the idea what Jesus was there for? Probably from James and John, right? And from the other ten, in the crowd because they're all walking around with jesus they're all listening to what he has to say so she's probably thinking about he's going to jerusalem what is he going to do when he gets to jerusalem he's going to chase the romans out with a pitchfork and he's going to establish god's kingdom in jerusalem so she wants james and john to have the positions of preeminence in that kingdom This would have been a very, very great honor. And I don't really blame the mother of James and John for asking this question. However, I wouldn't necessarily say that she wasn't doing it without the aid of some prompting on the part of James and John. Because, even though that doesn't sound very charitable, what mother isn't going to want the best for her kid? Come on. Right? So here's why I say she probably wasn't doing this of her own. This wasn't her idea. James and John probably poked her into it. Right? First, when Jesus gives the answer, he says, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And who answered? James and John. So Jesus answers James and John, not Mama. Okay, All the way back in chapter 18, at the beginning of chapter 18, we are told that the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus has to go on this little dissertation about becoming like children in our faith. Quit thinking about who's going to be the greatest. I really don't think that their mother was probably with them for what happened in chapter 17, and chapter 18, and chapter 19, while they were in Galilee. She probably traveled with them when they left Galilee and came down to Jerusalem, which wasn't until uh, the, the middle-ish of chapter. Um, I'm sorry, no, it was. It would have been around the beginning of chapter 19. So she probably wasn't with them when they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now here's the third reason. Remember where I stopped reading those verses? I said we'd deal with the reaction of the other guys, the other ten. If you take a look at verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Well, why would they be mad at James and John if it was their mother who was asking the question? Because they knew perfectly well that it wasn't their mother who came up with the question. They're using mama as a pawn. Because after all, Jesus isn't going to say no to mom. Right? Well, yeah, he is, actually. (laughs) So Jesus answers them and he says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? If you look throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, the cup is, is a picture of God's wrath that is to be poured out. It's really hard for me to think that this group of 12 Jewish guys doesn't know that. I think they were aware of that, but they were probably not understanding, and when I say probably, I mean definitely, not understanding what Jesus was talking about, about him drinking the cup. What was different about Jesus? He was sinless. Now, let me ask you a question. Every one of us spends time with other people, right? Are you necessarily aware of the sins that other people commit when they commit them? not unless you're really looking for it, and not, not unless it's a really big one, right? I may not know that you are harboring hatred in your heart. That's still a sin, right? I may not be able to tell that you were lusting after somebody who just walked past. That's still a sin, right? Now, if I watch you murder somebody, then I ooh, I saw that, right? But for the most part, we can spend time with people And not be aware of the sin in their life. Now think about the disciples for just a second. The 12 that are following Jesus. What is common across all 12 of them? They're sinners. Just like we are, right? So I'm going to do things that are sinful. They're doing things that are sinful. It probably has not dawned on them that Jesus hasn't. Think about that for a minute. They're involved in the day to days of life. Jesus walks along with them. Yeah, he teaches. Yeah, he teaches with authority. He says some things that are really off the wall that they don't understand. (coughs) But they're probably not consciously aware that he is, in fact, sinless, he's a man. And universally, every man that I have ever met is a sinner. So when Jesus says he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath, that means that he's going to deal with God's wrath like every other human being does. See, we all drink the cup of God's wrath if we're not saved. (coughs) But even for the person who's not saved, when we drink the cup of God's wrath, it's a sip. Because we're finite. And we deserve it. When Jesus says he was going to drink from the cup, he drank it to the dregs. All of God's wrath. It was satisfied. That word satisfied means the cup is empty. There ain't none left. So when he said that to James and John, they were probably discounting what Jesus was going to do because they ain't been listening when he said, I'm going to go be crucified and die and then rise on the third day. Okay, Jesus, whatever. Hey, my mom's here. She's got a favor to ask of you. James and John said, yeah, we can do that. We can drink the cup of God's wrath like you are. If Jesus was a sinner, they wouldn't be wrong. But he wasn't. So Jesus says, this is very important. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but for those that God has prepared it for. Whose cup are they going to be drinking from? Jesus' cup. <clears throat> They're not going to drink from the cup of God's wrath because Jesus emptied that cup. That cup's gone. They're going to drink from Jesus' cup. He's talking about the suffering that they're going to endure. And if you think about it, the first martyr from the disciples was James. The last of the disciples, the one who, according to church tradition, died of old age, not because of lack of effort on the part of the Romans, but or the Jews for that matter, But because he died of old age, because it was God's will, was John. Jesus said, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer because you come after me. You're going to have persecution. You're going to have beatings. You're going to have torture. But even with that, I can't tell you, you're going to sit on my left hand and you're going to sit on my right. Not my job. Hard for us to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, would say, That's not my decision to make. But I thought he was God. Well, yeah, but remember there is a difference between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all God, but they are not all the same person, they're individuals. God the Father has responsibilities and roles that God the Son does not have. God the Father did not come down here and die on a cross. God the Son did. God the Son was resurrected. God the Holy Spirit fills the believers. Three separate persons. Not three separate personalities. Not three separate manifestations. Three separate persons. They are of one essence. The father has the responsibility for determining who is going to receive the positions of honor. Why? Because how many of us deserve honor in God's kingdom? None. It's by God's grace, right? So since it's God's grace, he's the one who gets to pick who sits where. So now, like I said, the other ten disciples, they pitch a fit at the sons of Zebedee. I can can hear Peter's voice in my head. What makes you two think you're so special? The nerve, having your mother come and ask Jesus to put you in the positions of honor. Who do you think you are? And then that whole argument from back in Matthew chapter 18 pops right back up to the surface and flares up again. Especially when you take into account at the end of chapter 20, uh, sorry, at the end of chapter 19, starting in verse 25, when the disciples heard that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because they have great possessions and they lean on those and whatnot. The disciples said, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Again, I'm telling you, Jesus had to have had the biggest bruise right here on his forehead. Because every time I hear the disciples speak in the Gospels, my gut reaction is, Y'all are some of the hardest-headed, not-listening people I can imagine ever existing. And I'm so glad that I have mirrors in the house. <laughs> because when I read this and I go, man, Peter, how could you be so dense? Then I get to look in the mirror and say, hey, Bill, how could you be so dense? Again, I can hear Peter. This is this is creative license. This is not in the words of Scripture. This is Bill's interpretation of what's going on. I can hear Peter. I should have the place of honor. I was the first one who followed you. Well, after Andrew came and got me. But I mean, I left my mother-in-law. Presumably there's a wife. Right? Because Peter had a mother-in-law up in Capernaum that Jesus healed. Right? So presumably there's a wife. If not... There was at one point in time. I had my own fishing business. James and John, they worked for their dad. Zebedee still got fishing going on. They just up and left their dad. But I left my entire business. And then over here on this side, I can hear Matthew. Look, I worked for the Romans. I was a tax collector. There's a warrant out for my arrest. I'm a deserter. Why don't I get the place of preeminence? I can hear this discussion. What does it sound like to you? Me, 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 me. me. What am I going to get? What do I have? I've given up so much for you, Jesus. I'm better than they are. Remember that first passage, those couple of verses there, 17 through 19? Uh Uh-huh. They don't. In their pride, they have completely and utterly ignored the gospel. And then Jesus steps in. He says, look, stop. Shut it. You know how the Gentiles had their rank structure and the folks that are in positions of authority lorded it over the people that they're in authority over. Right? You know how their great ones exercise authority over their citizens. Listen close. This is the most important thing that Jesus said to the church. That's not how God's kingdom works. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then you better be a servant. If you want to be the first, you need to learn how to take care of other people. Jesus illustrated this so many different times in the life of the disciples. In those three years that they walked together, he showed them over and over and over again we're going to look at it next week in John's gospel at the, the the institution of the Lord's Supper when they get into the upper room. Jesus, because they're just, they're human like us. And I love y'all, but we're all just as dumb. Right? Jesus walks into the room and as they all sit down at the table, Jesus goes, he takes his robe off, he ties his tunic around his waist, he grabs a bowl of water And he starts washing their feet. To let you know how weird that is, Peter stops him. Because it's Peter. (laughs) Jesus, what are you doing? I ought to be washing your feet. Jesus says, no. No, that's not how it needs to be. You need to be cleansed. And then Peter, because he's a pendulum, right? Don't wash my feet. To, okay, wash all of me then. Don't stop with the feet. Dump it over my head. Because I'm all dirty. Well, at least he got that right. Jesus says, no. Would you shut up and pay attention for a minute? And then he makes himself to be the lowest of servants. Even for Judas. Wrap your head around that. This is a mere matter of hours before Judas is about to go betray Jesus and Jesus washes his feet. When Jesus says we need to be a servant, that's what he's talking about. Even for the people that we know are going to persecute us, we need to take care of other people. The church is not a place where you come to get something. There's nothing that irks me more than hearing somebody say that they left a church because I'm just not being fed. This ain't a golden corral. This isn't a buffet. What are you doing to feed the people that are here with you? Remember what the writer of Hebrews says, that verse that so many preachers like to just swing around like a baseball bat. Don't forsake the gathering. You must be in church every time the doors are open. We don't read the rest of it, do we? So that you can encourage each other and pray for one another and minister to one another. No, because because the guys who stand up here, right? Right? It's really easy to say you got to be here because I want that plate filled so that we can continue to pay my check because you're here to listen to me. If any of you guys are here to listen to me, please don't come back next week. There, There is a whole section like right here that can tell you that I'm not worth listening to. <laughs> Me. But see, here's the thing. I didn't write this. God did. The church doesn't have room for ego. The church doesn't have room for preeminence there is no place for anyone in the church to set themselves up above anybody else. And just in case there's not enough example of that, take a look at the end of the chapter. I told you all we were going to go long today. Starting in verse 29, as they went out of Jericho... Jesus has the opportunity to demonstrate this. They're leaving Jericho, they're walking down the road, and there's two blind men on the side of the road who call out, Son of David, have mercy on us. What can these two men do for Jesus? It's a really, really, really easy answer. It's nothing. They're blind. We don't know what their circumstances are. We don't know who they are. We don't know what their their heritage is. We know nothing about them. They're blind. And Jesus stops. He is on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. The mission that he has told the disciples three times that he's going to go and to die on a cross and to be raised on the third day. He's going to Jerusalem, and here are two guys who can do absolutely nothing for him, and he stops. And he says, what would you like? What can I do for you? Now, that may be the dumbest question you've ever heard. They're blind. What else do they want? Well, you know, blind people in the first century could be asking for money. They could be asking for somebody to lead them someplace. There's all kinds of things they could be asking for. Jesus says, what would you like? And they said, we just want our eyesight. We want to be able to see. Don't ask for anything easy. And so Jesus bent and he touched their eyes and restored their sight. What an object object lesson of servanthood. What a lesson for the disciples to pay attention to. When Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you need to learn how to serve other people. Quit thinking about me, 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 me. Start thinking about other people. In fact, he said that the greatest commandment is to love God with all you've got, and the second greatest is like it. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. Right? The conjunction that he used, and, that means it's both, not one or the other. And he used that word like, that compares. So, so the greatest commandment is to love God with all you have, and just like it. And just as necessary is love your neighbor as yourself. Sacrifice for people. There is, there is a tendency among human beings to only help those who can do something for us in return. I would really, 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 really like to say that that is specific only to those who are unsaved. It's not. That's our natural state of being. We even let it infiltrate our families. Right? Parents, I'm about to stomp on your toes. Right? How many of y'all celebrate your kids' birthdays? Raise your hand. Come on now. Celebrate celebrate kids' birthdays, right? We all do that. At some point in time or another, we all make a big deal out of kid's birthday, right? Now, parents, aunts, cousins, uncles, let me ask you this question. How many times have you ever looked at a kid and said, well, I'm not going to get you that if you're bad? Oh, that's right. You all better nod your heads. right is that grace no that is doing something for somebody else because they're going to do something for me you're going to behave you're going to keep me from having a headache you're going to keep your room clean so I don't have to clean it for you you're going to take care of your dishes so I don't have to take care of your dishes right alright how about this one for those of you that shook your heads because you don't don't have any children to deal with maybe or whatever right how many of y'all go to a restaurant You ever go to a restaurant, you got that waitress or waiter who comes over and takes your order and fills your drink and brings you your food, right? How many of y'all have ever thought or said, well, the service was terrible, so I'm not going to leave a tip? We do it all the time. I challenge you. Jesus is challenging you. Learn how to be a servant. Do for others regardless of what they can do for you. Children, you're not off the hook. I was picking on parents, now I'm picking on the kids. Right? I'll clean my room if you get me this Xbox game. Uh Uh-uh. you clean your room because it's the right thing to do. Because you want to honor your parents. Because you want to show love towards the people that you care about. See, this has great implications for our life. Most of all, most of all, listen close. I promise I will shut up in the next ten minutes. For everybody that was here last week, you owe me 20 So don't start complaining. That was grace last week. This week it's justice. When you meet people and have the opportunity to share the gospel with them, do it because they're made in God's image. Not because they can add a number to our church. Not because they can bring more offerings into the church. Not because they wear nice clothes. Not because they give you gifts. Not because you like them. Do it because that's what Jesus wants us to do.